Welcome to another session of Citizens Going Wild. Thinking for yourself in an age of, well, hype and glory. Today I want to focus on a particular person, Eric Hoffer. The name may not be familiar to you. He was a very unusual person uh, in history in general. He, was, he worked as a longshoreman. He didn't only wear working boots, he worked in working boots. And he started to write when he was middle-aged, and he wrote in a style of, that is um, really centuries old, aphorisms, little sayings, um, short, tight remarks. And what I'm gonna do today is just read from him uh, because there's no way I can outdo what he has to say in the areas where he has something to say. It was very, very unusual. He was, I guess you'd say, conservative at a time when most everyone was getting their radical left on. And one of his favorite areas to talk about was the intellectual. People who produce nothing but words. Um, these used to be people who sat around and s smoked very strong cigarettes at cafes in Paris, but they were, or they took over the universities and now they're professors who basically don't accomplish a great deal, uh, perhaps, but have sway over a lot of students. Even if they don't convince the students to come along with them on their intellectual journey, they take up space so that you don't hear another point of view. Anyway, this is about the intellectual and the masses. He says, the intellectual as a champion of the masses is a relatively recent phenomenon. Education does not naturally waken in us a concern for the uneducated. The distinction conferred by education is more easily maintained by a sharp separation from those below than by uh, evidence of achievement. When Gandhi was asked by an American clergyman what it was that worried him the most, he said, the hardness of heart of the educated. Throughout most of history, the educated sided with the powerful. In the Roman Empire, the intellectuals, whether Greek or Roman, made common cause with the powers that be and kept their distance from the masses. In medieval Europe, too, the intellectual was a member of a privileged order, the church, and did not manifest undue solicitude for the underprivileges. In only one society prior to the emergence of the modern uh, West do we find a group of men of words raising their voice in defense of the weak and oppressed. For many centuries, the small nation of the ancient Hebrews on the eastern shore of the Mediterranean did not differ markedly in their institutions and spiritual lives from their neighbors. But in the 8th century B.C., owing to an obscure combination of circumstances, it began to develop a most strange deviation. 
side by side with the traditional men of words, priests, counselors, soothsayers, scribes, there emerged an extraordinary series of extraordinary men who pitted themselves against the ruling elite and the prevailing social order. These men, usually called the prophets, were in many ways the prototype of the modern militant intellectuals. Some people have called them open-air journalists who recited their articles in the street, in the marketplace, and in the city gate. The first article of irreconcilable journalism was written by Amos, 1800 B.C. The intellectual tends to identify himself with the chosen people, and any truth he embraces as the one and only truth almost the very definition of a fanatic, and envisioning of a millennial society on Earth. See if you can hear echoes of that now. You identify yourself with a group that you say is oppressed. You say your truth is the truth, and there's no need to let anyone else speak. And you promise paradise on Earth. Sounds like the very definition of Marxism. The self-appointed spokesmen take the place of the inarticulate brethren. Now, in the old days, you either were educated or you weren't educated. So if you didn't know nothing, you really didn't know nothing. Things have changed. These people had no clear status. In those days, there were not universities, so you couldn't be identified as a dean or a provost or a professor or an assistant professor. The unattached intellectual's uneasy search for a recognized status and a useful role has brought him to the forefront of every movement of change since the Reformation not only in the West, but wherever Western influence has penetrated. In other words, the intellectual wakes up in the morning and doesn't know exactly what he's supposed to do and where he fits in. The dentist knows he's gonna drill on teeth, fill in the teeth, and the person will go home with less pain. The farmer knows to till the soil, and in a couple of months, corn will grow there, and he can sell the corn, and people will be delighted with the sweet taste of the Jersey silver corn. But the intellectual is a little bit ill at ease. Actually, they're always ill at ease, because it's not clear what they're here for. They don't plant cotton. They don't harvest beets. What are they here for? To justify his existence or her existence, he has consistently sought a link with the underprivileged. Being with the underprivileged is what gives him a sense of well-being and of purpose. I am here on this earth to help the poor and oppressed. He can be the champion of the peasant, of the proletariat, of persecuted minorities, of the natives of colonial countries. The people in these colonial countries may be wondering what the hell this white man is doing here, but the white man knows he's there to get a sense of purpose and meaning in their lives. There's something unusual about these men of words. 
Unlike the men of action, the man of words needs the sanction of ideals and the incantation of words to, in order to act forcefully. He wants to lead, command, conquer, but he must feel that in satisfying these hungers, he does not cater to a petty self. He needs justification. And if you listen to the people, for example, who say they are now woke, a lot of what they say is justification for, I guess, awakening people. He does battle for the downtrodden and the disinherited. Who asked them? Well, he asked himself. For liberty, equality, justice, and truth. Thoreau was not convinced. The American philosopher Thoreau said, the grievance which animates him is not mainly his sympathy with his fellows in distress, but though he be of the holiest son of God, it is his private ale that motivates him. Helping the oppressed is the justification. It's not a bad justification, it's better than most, but it's justification. Another element you should keep your mind on, and uh, very closely actually, is what happens if you don't listen to these people once they get in charge. Hell breaks loose, blood flows. The masses must obey. Where are the greatest slaughters of our time? Well, some, like the Nazis, all separate into one corner, but look at the other ones. In Russia, where millions of people were murdered. In China, where tens of millions of people were murdered. If the masses don't obey, they are in trouble. Let me give you an example. I was a soldier in Vietnam. Uh, what a lot of people don't realize when they speak of Uncle Ho, who is uh, Ho Chi Minh, who was the leader of North Vietnam for a while, is that the communists won to a fair degree in North Korea and then in South, I mean, excuse me, North Vietnam and then in South Vietnam because they promised the farmer, the poor peasant farmer, land. When Ho Chi Minh and his soldiers got in charge in North Vietnam, they said, no, 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 no. What we're going to do is we're going to make collective farms. You, the peasant, will not work on your farm. You work on our farm. A lot of the peasants revolted, and they were slaughtered by the tens of thousands. This happens again and again and again. Take another person, Martin Luther, not the modern, uh, well, Martin Luther, the uh, leader of the movement that later became Lutherism. He was the person who started the basic um, revolution, the Protestant revolution against the Catholic Church. Now, when he started and he defied the Pope, and he wanted the support of the people. He talked about the poor, the simple, the common folk. Later, when he gained power and was allied with the German princes, he lashed out against the rebellious masses with unmatched ferocity, not reprimanded them. Listen to what he said. 
Let there be no half measures. Cut their throats. Transfix them. Leave no stone unturned. To kill a rebel is to destroy a mad dog. He assured his aristocratic patrons that a prince can enter heaven by the shedding of blood more certainly than others by means of prayer. So at first they're wonderful people. Then when they disobey him, he says you can actually enter heaven if you cut their throats, which of course the princes were happy to do. The intellectuals demand to be taken seriously as gods, excuse me, as guides. What has happened in practice over and over and over again is that the masses have found the intellectual the most form formidable taskmaster in history. No other regimes have treated the masses so callously as raw material to be experimented on and manipulated at will. And never before have so many lives been wasted so recklessly in war and peace. On top of this, the communist intelligentsia has been using force in a wholly novel manner. The traditional master used force to extract obedience and let it go hand over whatever you have of value, and shut up. Not so the intellectual. The intellectual goes a step further. Because of his faith in the power of words and the irresistibility of the truths which supposedly shape his course, he is not satisfied with mere obedience, the traditional tyranny. He tries to obtain by force a response that is usually obtained by the most perfect persuasion, and he uses terror as a fearful instrument to extract faith and the fervor of crushed souls. If you've ever read a book about the inner workings of communism, let's say in Russia, uh, there's a book called Darkness at Noon. They have someone in custody who's a super patriotic um, pro-communist uh, former soldier who is very heroic and won many medals for the communists. For whatever reason, they decided that he is now a traitor. He knows he's not a traitor. The person uh, torturing him knows he's not a traitor. Everyone knows he's not a traitor. But... They will not stop aggravating him until he confesses. Terror is the fearful instrument used to extract faith and fervor from crushed souls. If you know anything about the aftermath of the Russian Revolution, you know they used to have what they call show trials, where people who were obviously innocent were forced to confess before they were taken away and killed. This is different. Most of the time, those who aggravated the power to be were just killed. But here, you have to confess. You, one cannot ex escape the impression that the intellectual's most fundamental incompatibility is with the masses. He talks well about them as long as they obey, 
But in fact, the intellectual is most at, at ease in, in countries and realms dominated by kings, noble, priests, merchants, but not in societies suffused with the tastes and values of the masses. That is, countries like the United States of America where they respect the professor, but they certainly don't look to the professor to find out how they should live their lives. Throughout modern history, we see people who are intellectuals and how they viewed with horror the mass society taking place on North America. That was one of the main reasons why the Europeans for so many years looked down on America. There's a German um, poet, Heinrich Heine, a very famous and excellent poet. He, he was appalled at what's going on. He called America the monstrous prison of freedom, where the invisible claims would oppress me even more than the visible ones at home, and where the most repulsive of tyrants, the masses, hold vulgar sway. That's a quote from him. Nietzsche feared that the invasion of the masses would turn history into a shallow swamp. Another important philosopher, thinker, and viewer said the masses exert an immense gravitational pull which seems again and again to paralyze every upward sweep. The tremendous forces of the masses, with their attributes of mediocrity, suffocate whatever is not in line with them. Emerson, a humane man if ever there was one, said the masses were, quote, rude, lame, unmade, pernicious in their demands and influence, and need not to be flattered but to be schooled. I wish not to concede anything to them but to tame, drill, divide, and break them up and draw individuals out of them. If the government knew how, I'd like to see a check, not multiply the population. Flaubert, another French intellectual, saw no hope for the masses. They never come of age and will always be at the bottom of a social scale. Don't forget, these are the masses of the people that the intellectuals are champion, but they're contemptuous of the people that are champion. Okay. Renan, a French intellectual, very wise man, very humane man, but he could not hold back his loathing for the mass of people. He thought that popular education, so far from making the masses wiser, only destroys their natural amiability, their instincts, their innate sound reason, and renders them positively unendurable. This is true the time after time after time. In modern times, intellectuals say they want to lift up the people. They want a better life for the people. But God help the people if they don't listen, if they don't obey. Here's one last intellectual that I will um, quote. A great writer, perhaps the greatest of all time, Dostoevsky, the Russian writer. And he puts the following words in the mouth of an intellectual, Lamishin. 
For my part, if I didn't know what to do with nine-tenths of mankind, I'd take them and blow them up into the air instead of putting them in, uh, in paradise. I'd only leave a handful of educated people who would now live happily ever after on scientific principles. That's the end. That is what intellectuals think of the mass of people that they are supposedly champion. That's it.